1: Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
2: Oh, and welcome to Unfiltered with me, Ollie Dugmore. From his hometown of Kingston, Jamaica, to the stage of Boomtown, UK, My guest today is an international Billboard Top 10 charting musician, known for his combination of the sounds of reggae and dancehall with the lyricism of hip-hop. In February this year, his third album, The Calling, won him his first Grammy, first, the important part, (laughs) beating out fellow nominees Sean Paul and Shaggy for Best Reggae Album. Described as part of the reggae revival, he's collaborated with the biggest names in the genre, from Damian Marley to Peter Tosh, with singles entitled Never Gonna Be a Slave, Stand Up, and No Capitalist. His music is often political, and always resonant. My guest today is Kabaka Pyramid. How's it going, mate? Giving thanks. Glad yeah. to have you here with us. Um, you're in London, you're in the UK. What's yes. your schedule looking like? Busy? Uh,
3: not too busy. Festivals on the weekends, so in the week we kind of just got to relax a bit, did a couple interviews. Most of the sessions, not too hectic. Usually when we're in the UK, we're doing, banging out three, four interviews a day, mm-hmm. driving for hours. You know, London is... But yeah, this is a little bit more relaxed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the festivals that you've done so far, I mentioned Boomtown in the introduction. Yeah, we did Boomtown, we did Regaland with mm-hmm. Milton Keynes. That was a great, huge crowd. We've done Reggae Jam in Germany. Um, we did Uppsala in Sweden. We've been all over Reggae Geel in Belgium. Mm-hmm. And we close out with Rotterdam coming
2: soon. So Nice. And it's not just Europe, right? I mean, You've been to La Reunion, you've played in Morocco as well. Morocco, yeah. International. Accurate, immaculate, and international these (laughs) days, yeah. Yeah, There you go. (laughs) Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a
3: good vibe. You know, we get to do what we love, travel the world, you know. I can't complain at all, you know. Have a close team and we yeah, you know, we get to see places that I never really dreamed of seeing even, you know, as a youth. I feel pretty lucky.
2: Yeah. Is it um Inform your music, how important do you think being open to those new experiences, experiencing different places, yeah. relates to not just your sort of... Well, actually, yeah, the writing of your lyrics and yeah. the, your vibe. Yeah, for sure. The more I've evolved
3: as an artist, the more about experiences traveling is the more I write for an international audience. That's what I find. A lot of Jamaican acts tend to write for the Jamaican audience, the Caribbean diaspora. But I like to write in a way that my lyrics are comprehensible. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone, and it, it draws on experiences from a global kind of perspective. Because mm-hmm. I'm always thinking about macro, like from my my journey with Rastafari. Right, has always been about you know um, seeing the world evolve into a better state. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that, that's always been the driving force for me.
2: Do you not think is that not the case for perhaps those other Jamaican artists? Like, what's why the difference between you and those other artists? Do you think?
3: I mean, you know, it's such a I don't know i guess how the genre developed you know it's it's it's, you know the music tends to speak about issues that jamaicans relate to you know about you know the poverty the crime the the dance hall the the culture you know the way we view just everything in day-to-day life and that's a big part of what i do as well but you know as a as an artist who at no point in time i I found myself being like the the hottest artist in Jamaica, the top artist in jamaica. I've had most of my success internationally mm. you know and, and and I feel a great level of appreciation at home, but it's still equally or even more in in a higher esteem traveling mm. so that that kind of fueled my 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 want to you know appeal to the international audience as well as just the way I think in general, mm-hmm. you know, I've I've never been localized. Like a lot of people grew up in Jamaica. There's, you know, there's high poverty rates. People born in the inner city. That's, you know, all, all, all they get to see. Not a lot of people get to travel. You know, and even when we do travel, we, we you know, we go to the United States or we, we go to England in places with high population of Jamaicans as well. And you know, even it's like culturally, it's unusual for Jamaicans to even travel to the rest of the Caribbean. You know, just like the typical average Jamaican. Obviously, you know, quite a number of people do it, but that that international awareness is not exactly common. But I was I was born with a certain, I guess you could say, privilege to travel from early you know exposed to to certain things internationally so that has always shifted my mindset mm-hmm. that is not just about jamaica in that sense in terms of how my consciousness has has been shaped mm-hmm. and yeah. obviously it's equally important as well to reflect the experiences of the diaspora as well as it is the for sure in for sure yeah that that is always important because that's you know that's that's the root of the music you know the root of the music. So as you mentioned before, with some of the songs I've I've sung about, it's it's definitely from that Jamaican perspective of, you know, there's there's this colonial system that was implanted in in the island and and you know that has limited our potential, mm-hmm. you know, financially, socially, economically, mm-hmm. and things like that. So speaking out against those things in the music, or just raising awareness of it, has always been important. From Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, right down to who inspired my generation, Damien
2: Marley, Steve Marley, you know. There's an interesting conversation as well happening here in Britain about um, boomerang theory, the yeah. way that um, sort of the colonial methods of oppression that were used in places like the Caribbean or in mm-hmm. Africa, the consequences of them actually now coming home to roost and yeah. being used to subjugate the working class population. Yes, the diaspora of places like the Caribbean Africa, but also, you know, the white British working class population here in Britain as well. Yeah for sure
3: I mean you you know subjugation and and oppression is a universal thing mm-hmm. you know it when you implement it on you know places like the Caribbean it affects a certain your body of people a certain group a certain race that you can categorize but it's still oppression in itself and anywhere you apply it it's the same thing you know and and, and you see it happening you know the, the you know I've a I have a friend who has done um this podcast before Akala and when I reason with him we're always talking about how it's not necessarily just you know about race it's 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 the oppression itself and you know a lot of things get typecasted by race because it happened to be you know within that subgroup mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily the 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 way it is fundamentally mm-hmm. you know so yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we, you know, the music is there, and that's what I love about reggae music because it's always been a platform to speak out against these things and and raise awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, so we we definitely carry on that tradition in what we do.
2: Yeah, and I think particularly here in Britain, um, and because of you know, mentioned Akala, his book, Nate, is utterly yeah. brilliant, but totally. the w- the way that class permeates everything as well in Britain. Yeah, not as not as simple as simply race, you have to look at the class picture as well. Um it's similar in Jamaica too. You know, oh, there's on. there's a big debate about that, whether
3: there is racism in Jamaica or it's classism. Okay. And personally I find that it's both. Tell me more. You know, because I guess if you look if you look at the big corporations in Jamaica and you look in the boardrooms, you'll see a certain, you know, complexion, a certain you know, it's majority. And, you know, that's coming from, you know, people migrating to to Jamaica, you know, from colonial days and, you know, having the land handing down the wealth to their families, then they're being able to invest in these companies. You know, a lot of the companies are owned by people from Ireland and from Syria and from from the UK and and America and such. So, you know, you you do find that there is this, this stigma where you feel like the lighter skin is the more you know, um, prestigious, and even schools I went to, like Campion in Jamaica, you find a lot of light-skinned people, and, and there's this, people call it colorism mm-hmm. or shadism, but it's really stemming from racism, you know, where, where you're seeing the image of the person with that that lighter skin. You know, but obviously when you get into race, it gets more complicated than just color, so maybe we have a less sophisticated version of it, because, you know, when you're when you're in Jamaica, and you're a lighter complexion. People see you as white. It, you know, even if you have, you know, mix. If you're of a mixed race and you have, you know, African blood in you. But maybe in the UK, you're a light complexion, but people still see you as black because you're mixed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 more about the racial purity in that sense. But it's still hierarchical. And they're still, you know, superior and inferior. And as long as you have that, it's still developing to a
2: class system, Mm. you know. I think one of the really interesting things in what you just said for me as well was the role of corporations. Mm -hmm. Because I think with this, well, probably a slightly simplistic understanding of history, you think, well... The British Empire doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So, you know, the instrument of colonial control doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But actually, when you think about the size and power of these corporations, mm-hmm. in many countries, actually, they're, they're often more powerful. And in, in the most extreme examples, richer than some entire countries are. totally. Oh, they have the power the, and the extractive power in the countries that they operate in to yeah. implement, yeah, okay, it might not be at the end of a gun, although actually, in some cases, they but do is, have yeah. militias and security forces that do use brute mm-hmm, force. Mm-hmm. But the the methods of control are slightly more subtle. They're capitalist ones that still serve an extractive nature and still impose a pretty authoritative degree of control over the local population. And where does the wealth end up? It doesn't stay in the country, does it? No, it goes it, elsewhere. It, yeah, it migrates for mm. sure. And you find that these corporations.
3: We're in a time where corporations are the nations now. Mm. You know, everything everything is being controlled. Even governments their initiatives and their, you know, what they're doing is being controlled by where the funding is coming from. You know, so you find that that's still kind of imperial, um, you know, control system, but from corporations. So it's, it's, it's it's the same thing being casted down, you know, but, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know, what can you do? You know,
2: (laughs) (laughs) well, you can make some pretty good music about it, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's really what it's all about, still. That's really what it's all about. Um, You mentioned in uh, one of your answers there about sort of the urban experience in Jamaica. Um, And Mm -hmm. in this interview series, we like to begin at the beginning. It's a conversation about how the events of your life led you to sort of see the world in the way that you do. So you were born and raised in Kingston, Jamaica. Yeah. Um, can you describe what Kingston was like in the late 80s, early 90s? What was it like <coughs> growing up there?
3: So there's there's always been a big contrast, you know, depending on where you grew up in Kingston, where you grew up in Jamaica. I grew up in an area called Mona, which is near to Papua, near to the University of the West Indies. Um, I would say middle to upper middle class, you, you could call it that. Um. But Kingston is a place where, you know, I guess just like anywhere else, you, you drive into a community, then you make a left turn and suddenly you're in the ghetto and then you come back out and then you're up in the hills and then you're in one of the richest areas in the country. So it, there's, there's always that mix, but then you still have this uptown and downtown complex where the further, because there's actually an, an incline. So as you drive down, you know, and you're going towards the sea, you find more of the, the inner city communities. You know, so I, I lived in what you'd consider uptown, you know, went to a prep school, you know, as opposed to like a primary school, which is more like a public school. So, you know, you learn to speak what we would consider proper English, you know, the patois and the, the dialect and such they kinda teach it out of you in mm. schools like that. You know, and um yeah, you know, two two loving parents who separated when I was eight. But still had both parents in my life, I would spend time with mom, spend time with dad. And um, you know, church going family. Mm-hmm. So I would go to church every Sunday and thing like that. My my introduction to reggae music was really through my father. Because all my mother would listen was gas is gospel music. You know. And um, driving to the country with pups, he would have his bob Marley he always bragged about he um he went to this record store in London that's underground. I forget what it's called. And he said he bought every single Bob Marley album. <laughs> 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 they always used to tell that story over and over. He mm-hmm. still does to this day. <laughs> but um we, he would have maybe like you know you had the six CD changer in the cars at that time, so he would have like three Bob CDs, maybe a a Peter Tosh, a Dennis Brown, and such. So, so uh, you know with those CDs would circulate all the time because he didn't really change them but I would hear a lot of Bob Marley's music growing up. And I remember hearing certain songs um, like Get Up, Stand Up, you know, when I'm talking about Preacher Man, Don't Tell Me Heaven is Under the Earth. And I used to feel conflicted, you know, as a Christian kid hearing these lyrics and not really know how to put it in perspective, mm. you know, And because um, I didn't really know much about Rastafari as a youth. You know, a little bit sheltered, but still, you know, I have a good friendship group and, you know, we play sports. You know, I was always into football, basketball, stuff like that. But, um, you know, I, I don't I, I don't think I had a very consciously aware childhood. You know, mm-hmm. just, you know, I didn't really know about the political landscape of what was going on in the country. You're kind of in your own little bubble. Um, you know, and then it's really when we got to high school now and I started to meet up with with new friends and, Got introduced more to dancehall music and uh, you know, cable TV just came in at that point. Um, I mentioned before I went to Campion College, which is one of the the, the, the academic, you know, um, top schools in Jamaica. Um, you know, white cross section of people, black, white, Chinese, dark skin, light skin, everybody in a mix. But like the average person in Jamaica would say, Oh, you go to a rich school. You know, when it's not necessarily that you still can get in based on grades and such. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that, that was the kind of stigma. You know, you go to one of the soft school there, man. So we always had this chip on our shoulder like we had to be tough. And, you know, when we go to mm-hmm. certain place, we represent because they have camping as a place where people come to the school and, and rob people's school bags and all them mm-hmm. kind of things. So, you know, I always had this, this idea that I can't be soft no matter what can't be soft and that you know I'm not sure that fire came from me being an Aries a fire sign or whatever but you know we, we had this big crew and it was a lot of it inspired by seeing Wu-Tang Clan and, and you know and DT and seeing them form this big group and everybody in these clerks wallabies and you know we in a Jamaica we have that consciousness of just wearing clerks and deserts and all of them things so we quickly identified with that we had this big group you know, working on the school, and you know, I I was already at the head of the group, and you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But you know, those days were fun. We, we 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 formed a sound system. You know, we used to keep our own parties in Jamaica. You start going parties from like thirteen, fourteen. So young, yeah. it yeah, you started pretty young. So by fourteen, fifteen, we had our own sound system. We we playing out at at parties. We voicing dub plates from the hot artists at the time, and you know, I. I was always the one like um, doing the remixes because my father owned a computer business. That's how he made his money in the nineties. So I always had a computer. Always, I knew how to build computers from scratch from in high school, you know. And yeah, I used to take the the the, dan- the hot dancers songs and put them over hip hop beats and make mix CDs and go out and play them. That was the in thing to do at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, yeah, and, and we just gradually. Transition from the sound system thing into you know building a studio. My brother was the first one to have this idea. We need a studio at home, and we need to start recording. and, and everybody started writing music and messing around, and and that's really where the journey began. Um, right around the same time, I was just finding Rastafari. okay, you know, and um, just start to smoke a little herb, and you know, your whole the way you think about life just started to change drastically. You know, I, I started to examine my thoughts. I started to examine, you know, my place in the world. And, and and Rastafari was the anchor for that. Sizzler's music was really what, you know, brought that awareness to me.
2: But I don't think it's a surprise, though, right, that your first sort of, the increase in political consciousness, the increase yeah. in class consciousness, the awareness about differences in religion, it comes through music, right? Yeah, for sure. That's where it first happened for 100%. you. 100%. And then... As you get older, that's where you start to express yourself. You start to develop more. And as a result of that, it opens your 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 mind. Totally. Far far more broadly. Totally. In school,
3: I used to get average grades, you know, considering it was like a top school, you know. Um, but still I I never used to I was always the one making jokes and, and, and having fun and like, you know, getting in fights and all them kind of thing. That was my kind of role at school. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was not until you know Sizzler's music and the Rastafari journey began. That I actually started taking up books and reading. I failed literature right throughout, um school. I just wasn't interested. The books just didn't interest me at all. I didn't finish even one of them. Mm. But it's 15, 16, 17 around Rastafari journey when I started smoking herb and started my mind was started opening up. That's when I started to read. Initially about His Majesty and about Ethiopia. And about, you know, why is it that this whole Rastafari concept came about? Mm-hmm. And that it, that's what kind of oriented me into this conscious kind of mindset. Because it was always about the oppression that Ethiopia faced from Mussolini. Mm-hmm. And that being symbolic of black oppression all over. And, you know, Marcus Garvey prophesied that there was this black king that's going to come. And, and His Majesty perfectly represented that. And, and Ethiopia being actually the oldest Christian nation, they have this Solomonic lineage where the kings were crowned, king of kings, lord of lords, conquering line of the tribe of Judah. They even said that the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Ethiopia. So there was this mystical aspect of Rastafari just, that just enraptured the minds of us as young people, whereas you know we were taught Christianity, and then you start to realize that one of the ships that um, they brought Africans to the Caribbean was called Jesus of Nazareth, and you know just different things like, and they used the Bible to 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 kind of reshape our minds mm. within colonialism. So you know that that kind of
2: consciousness—that's what Rastafari did for us. it's, yeah. it's an interesting contrast, isn't it? The, relig- the religion that was used to subjugate versus the religion that's used. Live right, exactly, and the contrast totally. between those two. Totally, things. and then there's there's a lot
3: of even conflicts within that because there's this rebelliousness that saying, "Yo, know, Christianity, like you know, totally resistant to it, replacing the idea of Jesus with this black king, Haile Selassie, and elevating into almost a deity, you know." And then you know the, the fact that His Majesty is the monarch of a Christian nation, and he Praises Jesus Christ so there was this kind of conflict where but within Rastafari it was still just rationalized you know and in some in some radical way but it just all made sense to us you know and um, but it it, the the more active parts of the movement I would say is you know um, rebellion against colonialism against capitalism you know returning to nature using nature's products, you know, not harming animals, the whole Ital levity, which basically is the same as being vegan. Mm. So that's, that's when that journey started for me, you know, stop eating anything to do with animals and such. as Rastafari awareness coming from like the Naya Bengi tradition, because mm. there were these different sects, they still are, Naya Bengi, Baba Shanti, you know, 12 tribes of Israel, you know. So that, 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 that shifted my whole entire consciousness. And and it was a very cold turkey thing for me too. You know, even me not eating meat and, and switching to a vegetarian diet at that time, that was maybe about a year before I went fully vegan. I cut off all animals in like one week. So I was in Florida living with my mother at the time, and she, she would be cooking chicken with rice and peas, and, and I would literally get the pack of like raw vegetables and just eat that with the rice and peas with some dressing.
2: <laughs> that, that, that's how it started. You know what I mean? that's,
3: that's how it started. And then, you know, eventually, you know, me and mom fell out because she she caught me with a chalice in a room because we used to smoke herb through a pipe We mm-hmm. got a chalice. And she found that and sent from daddy to send me back to Jamaica. And mm-hmm. she just couldn't deal with it. This You know, this rasta thing. And, you know, the... As as somebody who you know a Christian mother in Jamaica, you know, there's a definite stigma against Rastafari. Mm. You know, it's 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 aligned with smoking herb and, and, you know, more ignorant people in terms of so the even even in the when you when you talk about the fifties and sixties, you know, the worst thing you could be at the time is a Rastaman. And that was political, that was government. Like even the police force in the sixties, they used to practice their aim at shooting ranges to the image of a Rastaman, you know, and 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 we're talking about Leonard Howell up in Pinnacle. It was just this. the man was a symbol against rebellion, against the system. Mm. So you know, as far as the government is concerned, we can't have that. So there was all these rumors spread about Rasta that them, you know, we have lice in we here and all kind of thing, and the black heart man that when you're walking through the country in the dark, the black heart man is going to come and take away your children (laughs) and all kind of things. But anybody who spends any time with any Rastaf people, Mm. you know, is the most loving, caring, you know. Even to this day, I walk around Jamaica and people just expect it to be kind because they're a Rastaman. So there's these conflicting kind of perspectives and stigmas, Mm. you know. So even my school I went to, when... When I, they didn't accept me into Sixth Farm at Camp Penny. I had the grades to do it, but I was getting into trouble. I was getting in fights and such. So they told me that they wouldn't accept me. So I ended up migrating with my mom. And I would, my, my brethren was in Sixth Farm. And I would, you know, come back in the summer, or, you know, right before summer. And, like, school was still, you know, in session. I'd visit the on Man campus. And I have my malaxin and thing and. Literally, the vice principal told me that he can't allow me on the campus because my views are against the views of the school. Now, this was like a, a Jesuit school, and 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 things like that. So there was still that stigma. Things have changed since then, mm. but you know, it's 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 coming from the highest levels of society. You know, to just resist against any kind of. Rastafarian beliefs or anything that goes against the status quo.
2: I think it's interesting, isn't it? If people, if you have such strength of conviction in your ideas, why do you think my ideas are so dangerous? You know, exactly. Why can't you handle my ideas being in proximity yeah, to exactly. your own? You know? like an admitting of weakness in yeah. a sense. Yeah. yeah. Completely. Um, yeah. you went, actually, let's talk about that then. So you migrated with your mum to Florida, and yeah. earlier on we were talking about, you know, uh, your music sort of connecting with diaspora. Yeah. Do you think that early experience informed has informed your musical creation
3: since? Yeah, for sure, hundred percent. Any any experience I have shifts the awareness, you know. So living in Florida, even though that was a short stint, it was about nine months. Came back to Jamaica, and then I had another three year stint where I went a uh, second attempt at college, um, in Orlando, and you know I got a two year degree there in electronics and computer tech. Worked for a year, came back to Jamaica when the work permit you know, expired. And that's when we re-linked up with all our whole crew mm. and we started making music again. You know, one of one of the key members of our group was murdered towards the end of two thousand and seven, right before I came back home. So that was super tragic. And um it, it, it had this effect of galvanizing us though. So everybody came around together, you know, the stud at Avenue and Started making music. We put out a, a double CD with, you know, half of Rap Brown who was murdered. We put his music on one half, and the whole kind of like a Wu Tang type um, project on the other CD. And everybody, you know, seven, eight, nine of us, you know, rapping, DJing, singing everything in one. You know, and for me personally. I I had no early in my art. So so when I first started to write music, that was 2002 when I moved to Pembroke Pines with my mom. Um, I had zero like natural talent for music. I can tell you that's true. <laughs> like, I, 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 what I had was a brain, and I knew I knew what good lyrics sounded like, mm. especially from a technical perspective. Like I used to study rappers like Cannabis Big Pun. Eminem, Most Deaf, Talib, Kwali, Nas, the real lyricists, the lyricists who were very technically skilled. Mm. You know, and that, that kind of shaped my creative process because I wanted to sing and sound like Sizzler, but I had no idea what I was doing. I was totally off key, had no vocal tone, anything like that. Mm-hmm. It took years to develop that. You know, by the time I, I left Orlando, I was kind of navigating my way through my voice. My reggae stuff sounded a bit better at that time, but I was still super confident just rapping. Mm. You know, I used to rap with an American accent and just like, you know, sounding like any any rapper from New York.
2: Mm. And, um,
3: but it was, al- it was always conscious.
2: Okay, yeah, I was going to say, whether it why you were doing that, whether it was because you'd heard sort of American uh, hip-hop and so that was what was informing you, whether it was because you were in America and therefore you wanted to sort of make the music that was more accessible <coughs> or... Sounded like what other people were listening to at the time? What
3: was? Yeah, it's just what I enjoyed listening to. Because right. I was in Orlando in a little bubble. I didn't know anybody in the music industry. Mm. You know, a couple of my friends from college also made music. Um, one of them who later blew up, an artist called Ayaz. He had a big hit called Replay. And, you know, me and him used to send music back and forth and just, just vibe. We were just making music just for the love of it. I would mm-hmm. go to school and I didn't do any schoolwork at home. It was just all music. You know, but it was easy, like going college in America, coming from a school like Camping in Jamaica, like you learn all of that stuff already, mm. you know, so <laughs> most of what I was doing I learned from in, in high school yeah. in Jamaica, so it was easy, I would, I would just blow through college, uh, at least the two-year degree that I did, yeah, and then, you know, just at home making music, experimenting, you know, but the rapping just, it just came easier for me. Mm. Because I didn't have to worry about my vocals, I didn't have to worry about the key, melodies, anything like all of that was
2: complicated. Uh I I couldn't understand (laughs) it. Keep it it. simple. Yeah, Yeah, just keep it simple. With the um, you mentioned earlier that as you started to sort of engage with Rastafarianism, Mm. you sort of all of a sudden you were able to engage with literature. You were able to engage with music. Did you did you experience that? I don't know with perhaps. Other 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 art forms, as well, did it change your perspective more broadly about other parts of your life rather than just things you mentioned so far um, so all right so what what
3: what kind of happened with me was my my reading journey began with books about Ethiopia and about his majesty and about rastafari and then someone lent me a book called African Holistic Health, and that brought me to these ideas of um the fact that ancient Egypt was a black civilization. And, you know, I started to learn about deities like Ma'at, and, and that book also dealt with health, and it gave me a lot of reinforcement for the vegan diet that I was, you know, implementing at the time. And that shift, that started to shift my consciousness from a Rastafari perspective that still has a lot of, you know, Judeo-Christian elements to it. To a kind of West African consciousness. I am an African. Different from I am a, a, a descendant from this Israelite tradition that Rastafari embraces. So my 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 journey with identifying as an African began. And that's when I looked up the name Kabaka. And and you know, it means king in Uganda. So I kind of developed this musically, I kind of developed this split personality in a sense that the, the reggae side was the the more you know Rastafari oriented but still African and um Kabaka was my name doing reggae music. Um, but at the same time this fascination with ancient Egypt and Kemet developed and I started reading books by Muata Ashby you know Egyptian Book of the Dead and he formed this basis of you know this foundation that all the world's religions, the major religions of the world, stemmed from out of Egypt, based on evidence from the, the texts within the pyramids, within the coffins, within the sarcophagi. You know, you you see, you see that Heru, Asar, Asar, and Aset being the the the, the Jesus, Mary, and Joseph of two thousand years prior to Christianity, and all of that kind of foundation was being developed in my mind, but. Because Rastafari was kind of still from this biblical lineage where anything to do with Egypt is considered like, you know, the, the Israelites came out of the oppression of Egypt. So, as a Rasta man, I couldn't really be singing about Egypt in a positive light, people wouldn't understand. So, I found more expression for that side within hip hop. Mm. You know, you, if you listen to Rakim, you hear him talking about the pyramids. There was this, there was this consciousness from an African, you know, Afrocentric perspective that embraced Egypt within hip hop, within kind of New York, um, you know, five percent nation, nation of Islam. They, they they kind of embraced this. There were these rich African civilizations and. You know, so that part I could find more expression about stuff like that within hip-hop, and um yeah, so the, the, there was these contrasting forms of expression to the reggae music, Rastafari, you know, talking about things impacting Jamaica, mm. but then this kind of universal, more international, ancient Egyptian expression with the pyramid, Rani pyramid, and Kabaka. Mm. Uh, when I got back to Jamaica now it reached to a point where I had to make a decision. Like, you know, my voice was developing, I was feeling more confident as a reggae artist, knowing that all the the connections I have in Jamaica is to do with reggae. There's this, the the hip hop scene is not really that big in Jamaica, um, but there's definitely no support system for it. There's nobody on the radio playing any rappers from Jamaica. Mm. Maybe I had some DJs in the 90s, but then some something happened and that there was just this big conflict that happened and nobody was playing any Jamaican hip hop after that. Big up to Alric and Boyd and the man there who was supporting the whole hip-hop thing. But I I I found myself at a roadblock and even me and my team discussing like cause I have these hip hop mixtapes, you know, people loving what I'm doing, but there's just no appreciation for it in Jamaica. It's very niche. And I don't have any contacts in New York. You probably go to New York and say you want to be a rapper from Jamaica. You let this, you know, a, a, a small fish in a big pan kind of thing. Mm. So I just decided I wanted to find a way to fuse the reggae with the hip hop. And Damian Marley was a big inspiration for that. And I actually um, made this beat at the studio one time. And it was very much inspired by Road to Zion, which is a song with Damian and Naz. I wanted to make a beat that just felt exactly like that. And me and and my my artist friend at the time, Coral Fire, wrote a song called Better Must Come on the Beat. And it had these reggae melodies, but this kind of hip-hop type of lyricism. And it was really just kind of... I felt like it was the blueprint of my sound going forward. You know, and I I found a way to kind of appease my hip-hop lyricist self but still within the melodic structure and the musical structure of reggae music, mm. and that is around the same time I, you know, I became friends with Janine, and she introduced me to Protege. Protege came to the studio, heard that song you know, just love what I was doing because him come from a similar background where his early stuff, he sounded like a rapper, but just with a Jamaican accent. Mm. I never knew how to do that. I always rap with an American accent, (laughs) you know, but I was still finding my way to do reggae that still felt lyrical and, and, you know, hip-hop influence. So, you know, he helped me with that first, putting on my first project, Rebel Music, and gave me some beats for that, provided a space to do some work up in the hills and, that's kinda of where my career so everything was all of these these two kind of conflicting sides kinda of merged together. And that's really when
2: I could say like my career began. It's uh it must be crazy to look back, first of all, you know, as a kid in the car with your dad listening to Bob. Yeah. Then wanting you know, literally going to Damien Marley and being like, That is the source of inspiration. That yep. is what I want to emulate. Yeah, yeah. So then collaborating with him you know working with him to, to starting your career being like okay let's give let's go the reggae thing a go and then yeah. you, from this perspective here you're sat here looking back you, you've won a bloody grammy right <laughs> for best yeah, reggae yeah. album and I wonder if when you were in that mentality when you were starting yeah whether you knew not knew but had an idea thought you might get this far that success like this would be achievable I don't know whether whether you thought that at the time I'm perfectly honest
3: I was just in the moment I was just in the moment from the the beginning like when you're when you're a rapper that's kind of how I would maybe identify myself at the time you know a rapper in Jamaica you don't see a path you don't kind of see where it's going to work out you just know that you're doing it because you love it but then once you know, I found, my, I found my footing within reggae music and you start to see the momentum. That's kind of where the possibilities start opening up. But I can't say like I was in the car driving to the country with dad having these big dreams of being like Bob Marley. Mm-hmm. You know, I always wanted to be like my dad, like an electrical engineer. And, you know, that's really what I wanted to do. But, you know, as the momentum started to gather, it's like we're saying, yo, this is real. You know, mm. this is a real possibility and, you know, yeah, it was just a crazy time. And when when Gang first reached out and sent the beat that I wrote, well done, and that was a, a turning point for me, for sure. You know, going to studio and working on that song with him and just starting reasoning about doing projects in the future, it was a mind-blowing thing for me because this is like one of your idols. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and... Just being super inspired, he's literally the blueprint of what I do musically, mixing the hip hop dancer with, with with reggae, you know. And and his career is still something I aspire towards achieving the different goals that he has set, you know. And being able to work with him is just is almost like an unfair advantage. <laughs> like, but I mean, he wouldn't have done it unless I showed some kind of mm-hmm. you know potential and talent and. That's, that's what I was working towards for the whole time up to then.
2: How did it how did it initially start? Was it, you know, you send that tape, you get the message back, and then you start talking more and more and you're away? What's Yes, he, he
3: reached out to a mutual friend and said he wanted me to record on a rhythm that he was producing. Um, and, you know, I got his number throughout that process after I recorded it, I emailed it to him. Mm. I didn't get any reply or anything, but then I texted him and say, oh, you get the song? Mm-hmm. And him just text back, well done, exclamation sign. <laughs> that was the name of the song. But you know, yeah. yeah, so he's like that. A man of few words, especially on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it mean a lot. It mean a lot. I remember I was over Dwayne's father's house and we were watching the classical because I'm a big Barca fan, mm. you know, as well as Arsenal. Let me just put that out there. <laughs> Those are my two teams. Which comes first, Arsenal, Arsenal or Barca? I started following Arsenal first. Okay. Um... But you have to say that because you're in London, right? No, no, it's facts, it's facts, it's facts. <laughs> it was really Ronaldinho that got me to start falling in Barca, so that was later on. But because Barca has had such a more successful time since then till now, mm. I, I've probably been more passionate about Barca, yeah, but yeah, Arsenal yeah. from foundation, for Okay, sure. nice. Um, but yeah, I was watching the classical, and the rhythm came in, and I literally wrote the song from start to finish right there. And that's not normal for me. I usually... I usually write like the chorus and a verse and then just bring up the microphone, go in the studio and start, you know, just finish the rest mm-hmm. in my head, you know. But writing out the whole song, that was that was something special. Like it's not often that just all the lyrics, my thoughts on the, on the subject was so clear. And for those who don't know, well done is like uh, a song, you know. Basically, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, well done, Mr. Politician, man. You've done a wonderful job tearing down the country demolition, man. So you're using sarcasm to, to drive home the point about mm-hmm. what, you know, and I'm talking about different specific things that the government has done to sell out our resources and all of them kind of things. And that became my biggest solo song or my most identifiable song, you know, especially in Jamaica. And it's it's so happened that it's Damian produce it, you know. So it's just that that was a real turning point. And it's so crazy to think that if you say my career started in 2011 and that song was written I think the end of 2014. That was just three years into this journey. So I've I've literally spent the majority of my journey. Working with Gang mm. But in my mind It still feels like I was working for a good while And then Gang kind of got involved You know Probably felt like a long time Before yeah, he got involved Yeah felt like <laughs> a, Those first three years had so much happened mm. Like we put out a mixtape in, in our We call it an EP But it was 10 songs But we put it out for free Because we sampled some records We didn't we, we figured we wouldn't be able To clear them And all of that stuff So we just put it out for free mm. Um that was june twenty eleven and by march twenty twelve we were on tour mm. you know in Europe for like a month and a half, so that was just crazy and then from then, you know we went to Costa Rica with chronics and Janine and midnight, and you know from you know we just started just hitting the road after that we we formed bands with young musicians. And we just, yeah, we just started to tour. Like we didn't, we didn't have the money to do it. We were coming back in debt, you know, but we just took musicians on the road. We wanted to be like Bob Marley and Peter Tash and, and, you know, everybody was doing it. Chronics was doing it, Protégé, Dre Island, Janine, everybody was carrying their bands, Raging Fire. And that was just the whole movement at the time
2: you know, to mention those sort of legends, right? Like Peter Tosh, like Bob Marley. And then this whole group of artists coming through now, it's kind of been described as like a reggae revival. Exactly. How do you feel about that terminology? Do you, is it one you agree with? Do you like being part of sort of described as that?
3: It's a, it's a weird one because a lot of people took offense to it. Mm. Um, I personally, I personally thought it was quite fitting you know but it was something that i would say it came out of publications from Europe like you know riddim magazine reggaeville all of these publications um started to to highlight the fact that these young artists were forward into Europe with their bands you know presenting their music in this professional way where maybe the last 78 years prior to us going on tour you found a lot of a lot of acts using like backing bands from europe um you know doing the more affordable thing you know when we have to get visas for 7 8 musicians plus management plus um videography and all of that it it costs a lot of money it's not really the most efficient thing to do financially mm. But it just it set a, a different precedent, and um, you find that these artists are no longer kind of under the regime of a producer. So, like, you would find like you know, exterminate Fattis, bringing Luciano on the road, and and Sizzler is also a young artist on the label. So Sizzler would go on the road and perform, you know, probably with the same band and stuff like that. And it was just completely It just felt different with our movement. So I could understand. You know, and then there was this whole, um, you know, backlash about you know artists speaking out against certain things, and that caused a major dip within artists being able to tour. So you know, when our kind of movement started and all these artists touring again with their bands, it just felt refreshing to people in Europe. You know, so I, I fully understand why you know they felt, and you know, Dutty Bookman is you know, the one who actually coined the word revival. And, and you know, but they these publications, they saw it as relevant. They saw what we were doing as special and unique. And we were all, you know, featured on songs together. We performed together. Even in Jamaica too, we were doing these small shows, you know, 200, 300 people coming to our shows and everybody's doing these long sets. Whereas in Jamaica at the time, you know, a lot of artists would just come on the stage to tracks and, you know, just sing a couple of songs and come off the stage where, you know, we'd, we're really trying to curate a song, mm. you know, and, and, and doing our rehearsal and everything. And it was refreshing. It was refreshing. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad to be a part of it. I benefited from being a part of it. Mm. You know what I mean? Artists like Chronics just blew up totally, dropping hit after hit after hit. And everybody benefited from that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. His his Rice shone a light, on everybody protege as well. Big sons, you know. And and we all have these young teams that were, you know, we're trying to go about business the right way. You know what I mean? Where there there has been a lot of undercutting and shortchanging and mistrust and you know bad negotiations, you know, in in previous eras. And not to knock the previous generation, they did great things. They they you know, they provided the platform that we could go on and tour and have this touring market. You know, some of us with hit songs, some without hit songs, but we still people just want to see good music, mm. you know? So, yeah, as I say, I, I, I didn't have a problem with the term because... You know, to revive something doesn't mean it was dead. If it's dead, it's dead. You can't revive a plant that has died. You know what I mean? But if it withered down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can look tangibly and empirically at evidence that that was the case.
2: And, yeah. you know, to have as well on a track like Mystic Man, to be able to have Peter Tosh on there as well. Yeah. goes to show that it's not, you're not turning your back, right, on the people that no, came before us always. No, no, totally. The two are deeply connected to each other, right? Oh, no, totally. And, and...
3: Even at the time there was this there was this stigma too that the revival is this set of artists, like it's a roster, and we all came together and organized it and, and things like that. And I was never of that mindset. You know, I always used to try and shine a light on, on artists that was not really associated with the re- revival then. Mm. You know, like the Paris Rileys and the Ibermars and the Romain and Virgos and the Chris Martins. These were all artists that were Touring with their bands as well and doing reggae music, but just because people see me, Chronic's protégé Dre Island, Janine and as friends, and performing together, it's like it became this kind of elite group that nobody else was in the club, and I, I never, I never liked that kind of mentality, and I, f- I think people reacted to the, the um the terminology because of that, and I also used to a lot of people came with this kind of idea that. The revival we haven't seen anything like this since um Bob Marley, Peter Tash, you know, Bunny Whaler, then um Burning Spear. And I'm like, no, there were there were different eras. You had you had the, the, the Black Uhurus and the Inner Circles, you had the, the Lucianos, the Sizzlers, Anthony Bees, Capitan Bujabantan of the 90s, you had the the Wayne, the Chuck Fender, the Richie Spice, the Jack yours of the 2000s. And now we just, you know, is another movement that come up. But there are still subtle differences within it, but I would always try to highlight these things because mm-hmm. I, I, di- I didn't like when, you know, people felt like we were being disrespectful to the previous
2: generations. Mm-hmm. I, I never wanted that. And how important was it you to kind of continue the political tradition yeah, no, of, su- of Music super important
3: to me. That was always it because Sizzler's music shifted my mind towards that. So I always felt like as an artist, it was my responsibility to, to do that as well. And, and I always kind of felt this, it's almost like the opposite of a chip on the shoulder. I came from a kind of privileged um, setting in Jamaica. Not the richest or wealthiest family, but still, relatively speaking, more privileged. So I always feel like if ones who come from that kind of background don't take the responsibility to use their resources or their platform and and at least raise awareness about the issues, then who's going to do it? You know what I mean? So I always felt that responsibility. And as a Rastafara, you, this is just part of the tradition for burn Babylon and, and you know, and, and, and things like that, you know. But I always try to do it in, a, in an intelligent way, a diplomatic way, you know, like his majesty, not just
2: an ignorant fire or anything like that, you know. <laughs> um, do you see, and you see that politics con- continuing to be a part, you know, going forward as you write as well. You definitely want to carry on talking about those issues. Yeah, you yeah. won't stop doing that. No, for sure. And, you know, I also want to engage
3: with politicians as well, you know, and and see what we can implement because you can look at it as music and, and I can earn a living talking about political stuff within music, but what are we actually trying to accomplish? You know, it's, it's, it's never just been about the songs for me. Mm. It's about what can, what can we actually do? You know, I've been a part of You know, community arts organizations that, you know, really try to bring activities to the inner city. You know, I've donated towards organizations that are determined to shift the the reality of the inner city in Jamaica. You know, so it's it's more about just singing and writing about the politics. That's a big part of it. But it's how can we be active? Mm. How can we be activists? How can we, you know, use our resources to make actual change? Mm. You know?
2: You've, you've spoken before as well about perhaps that focus of your music as a, and I guess it relates to the conversation we were having earlier as well, actually about um, sort of not necessarily talking about using the violent lyrics yeah. or lyrics that would maybe perhaps objectify women mm-hmm. or in that way. Yeah. Could you talk about that choice when you write and, and perhaps not talking about the things that some other artists do talk about?
3: Yeah, I think it's just a balance. I think there's always a need for balance. And I think there's the sensationalism and and those kind of derogatory stuff. There's a part of the brain that that appeals to. It's natural. You know, we watch violent movies and, you know, we we watch things that stimulate different parts of of our emotional spectrum. And I understand that. And there will always be a place for that in music. But when it comes to what do you want your children listening to? What do you want your children influenced by? Um, you know, you don't want to shelter them too much, but you don't want to hear certain things. Like, to me, it was one thing hearing rappers talking about selling drugs, but I would still listen to the rappers that maybe they talk about that, but they still talk about, you know, knowledge and and consciousness, and and there there was always this balance. Mm. But now when you hear an artist talking about taking the drugs and, you know what I mean, and, what they're doing with women and there's nothing in their music to balance it. it that's where it gets, you know, a problem for me. Mm-hmm. And so my, my role and responsibility is always to help provide a balance with some kind of substance and, and represent my nation, my people, my genre in an uplifting way. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, I don't want to disgrace myself in any way. I don't want people to be quoting my lyrics in, in 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 things And embarrassing myself You know what I mean mm-hmm. Like I think about What if my mother Was to hear this song You know mm-hmm. And it might not be the, the best way To get
2: hit songs Taking that
3: approach But at least I want to be proud of myself At the end of my career
2: Maybe some parents Would actually prefer Those songs Rather than the political ones Might yeah, be a little bit More, a bit. De- little bit more yeah, dangerous No
3: but there, there, <laughs> there is There is Not talking about Derogatory stuff Towards women Or not talking about guns and violence. And then there is talking about political stuff. Like you mm. could just do songs about love. You could do songs about just everyday stuff like mm. pop music, yeah. you know, but speaking out against injustice and things like that, I feel that's a part of Rastafari tradition. And mm. it's, just, it's just a part of the duty.
2: Could you talk a little bit about um, how you reconcile what you've said there about mm-hmm. songs about drugs mm-hmm. um, and then also your own work talking about um cannabis as well yeah. because obviously well particularly here in Britain right where the sort of the social attitude towards cannabis is that it is viewed as, as a drug yeah, yeah exactly of course i mean i understand that i i can
3: speak on both sides because i don't actively smoke it or use it right now um i've had certain issues with you know physical effects of it um you know, whether it's the cannabis or it's actually smoking, because I used to smoke with a lot of tobacco as well. Mm. But I reached a point where it was no longer serving me to to be smoking and to be using the herb and thing. Um, but at the same time, I can acknowledge that herb totally transformed my thinking from just this ignorant kid who never really cared much about certain things in life to just be seeking to be aware of what's going on around me. And I think I think Herb was the most transformative thing to do that for me. Um, You know, you can speak to the dependence on it and a lot of people use Herb as a kind of coping mechanism, which is understandable because the world we live in is is a crazy world, you know what I mean? Like, we're on social media all the time, we're we're judging our our self-valuation by likes and comments and numbers and, you know, a lot of people face with depression. You know, relationships, the food that we eat have all these hormones in it. All kind of things are going on. And, um, you know, so I I can understand using something that comes from the earth that's natural to kind of help to balance that and alleviate a little of the pressure, you know. But still, I don't necessarily advocate for just totally depending on it, not being able to just take a break. You know, mm. when when you need to, because depending on how you're using it, bringing smoke into the lungs is not, it's not ideal. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, <laughs> you know, well, you know, but then people could argue. Some people smoke cigarettes till they're 90. You know, so it's just, you know. But yeah. anyway, and I know people who smoke herb for all their life and and don't have any issues. But I've seen where even in my family, you know, you have people who, you know. The herb can accentuate certain mental imbalance and things. So Mm -hmm. there's that factor too. And and it's changing. To me, I felt like the point where I stopped smoking herb was when herbs started to change. Like the actual, you know, the biology of it and how it's grown and how it's just manufactured to give it the highest, highest effect. It's almost unnatural now. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. But, you know, I, I... I still advocate for it in the sense that it can, it can provide a platform for
2: total transformation. Were you scared to stop then? Because if it's been was something that really helped you to open your mind and mm-hmm. help with the creative process and to engage with different ideas, yeah. if you're still in a creative profession you know, the, the prospect of stopping doing something that yeah. really helps you with that is quite, it's <laughs> yeah it's quite like scary.
3: Sometimes even, even if I, you know, I take a couple hits off, a spliff and I, and I, I just listen to music. It's just, it's such a vibrant thing. Like definitely creating music with herb is a special thing for sure. And I'm sure a lot of artists use different jobs as a part of their creative process. But you know, not considering herb or drug or anything but you know it's something that stimulates the mind and it 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 to me it heightens sensation that's what it does and whatever you're sensing it will heighten it if you're sensing music if you're sensing food the taste of food it just heightens the sensation Mm. it makes different things more enjoyable you know And, and I can totally understand it when I when I listen back to beats I made when I was still smoking herb, it's just a different vibe. than know, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But once I realized that I could still write music and and I could still enjoy the music I'm making, there was no pressure for me to kind. It wasn't difficult okay. to, to to stop using it like on a daily basis. And do you think it's a political act as well? I do. Um, I do feel like you know people have been wrongfully you know, arrested and charged over the years, you know, for herb and still being imprisoned, you know, for something that, you know, as we have found, you know, from Peter Tosh said legalize it in the seventies till now, you know, this is this is something that can be used for healing. If it's approached the right way. You know, we've seen the effects of C B D and, and epilepsy and all of these things. You know, the evidence is there. So I do think that the, the stigmatization of it has been wrong, and now we, we as humanity, kind of made an error in that sense. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do politically advocate for it for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, we're coming towards the end of this conversation, so it's yeah. my last question for you, unfortunately. Yeah. But and it maybe it's slightly reductive, actually, as well. But mm. you know, if you were to try to simplify your message, if you were to try to simplify what you like, want to communicate to people through yeah. your music, uh, what is it like? Someone who hasn't perhaps listened to you before but is watching this now, yeah. what would you like them to know?
3: At, at the end of the day, regardless of race, class, whatever differentiation, we're all souls evolve evolving towards a higher consciousness. That's all it is. That's all the experience of life is. And with that, you know, we should, we should look at life in a positive light regardless of what we're going through it could be the worst experience it's still it's still a positive in that we learn something from it mm. the the point is to gain experience and i think if we start to look on that um there would be less division less differentiation in the world once we know that we're all collectively a group of souls billions of souls evolving towards a positive reality you know that's that's ultimately what it comes down to and and i believe that you know, we should use our platforms, what, whatever it is, when necessary, to speak out against injustice of all kinds,
2: you know? Rebecca Pyramid, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate it, mate. Thank okay. you.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.